Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out why the discontinuation of a specific U.S. brand of a kind of tiny pasta called Stellina has left a big hole in many hearts and stomachs and how they've taken to social media to try to get the company to reconsider. We speak to Indigenous graphic designer Jacob Alexis about his work on a new series of hockey cards from Upper Deck called the First People's Rookie Card Series that features eight Indigenous NHLers from multiple eras on hockey cards for the first time. Strongman author Ruth Ben-Ghiat joins me to talk about what the future may hold for Vladimir Putin 11 months after he launched his invasion of Ukraine. But first, Siberia recorded its coldest temperatures in more than two decades this month. Minus 60 degrees Celsius, can you imagine? And now that deep freeze is making a move towards Canada. We find out what's in store for us. The first up tonight, you might want to start planning that comfort food menu for a little bit later in the week. Earlier, even if you're in Toronto. Later in the week, if you're out west, because um, something unpleasant is coming our way from Siberia. Imagine, I don't know if you saw these headlines, but... Um, on January 14th, they recorded a temperature of minus 62.4 at a weather station in Siberia. Minus 62.4. That's the coldest it's been in all of Russia in two decades and just 0.3 degrees Celsius from the average temperature on Mars, according to one report. Cold. Now, it's been a pretty mild winter so far. A lot of Canadian cities are kind of thinking, wow, maybe this one won't be so bad. The operative word, though, is so far. Again, that's about to change with temperatures expected to plunge. That always, of course, is a challenge for shelters right across the country, right across the areas that will be hit. Here's uh, what one shelter in Winnipeg is saying about bracing for a surge in demand. Anytime we're looking at a cold snap, we start to get worried about, you know, will we have enough uh, for everybody? And as I was mentioning, uh, Toronto is already bracing for a huge snowstorm. No one knows any of this... He knows this much better than I do. Anthony Farnell is chief meteorologist at Global News. Anthony, thanks so much. It's been it's been ages since we worked together in Montreal, so it's great to have you on the show. It has been. I'm uh, happy to be on with you tonight. So tell me about. Uh, I mean, I guess we could start with Toronto because it's happening, right? Are you guys bracing for a big storm? Yeah, it looks like it's going to be at least the biggest of the season so far for the city, for the surrounding areas. Uh, a lot of people remember that crazy blizzard that we had right before Christmas, but uh, the effects in Toronto, yes, there was wind, there was snow, but the amounts weren't uh, weren't necessarily that high. It was nothing like Buffalo or, or the Niagara region or, or other parts of the province that just got buried. So this is going to be the, the biggest storm of the season so far. And it comes all at once during the afternoon and evening commute. So that's going to cause Yikes. some problems for sure uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, Vancouver had something similar back in December. When it when it starts to fall around, you know, two ish, two three, they can't get the plows out fast enough, and everything goes kind of uh, south, if you can forgive the pun, um, right around rush hour. So that sounds like it's going to be a big challenge. Yeah, especially when people are already in at work. You know, you go in, the roads are fine, and then you figure out, okay, what do I do? I look out my work window and I see whiteout conditions. How do I get home safely? And, and I think that's, that's what's going to happen uh, in Toronto and much of southern Ontario. And then, then it heads east, Quebec, the Maritimes, all dealing with this crazy storm that we've been watching for a couple of days. It was It was in... The desert southwest, Tucson, wow. Phoenix getting snow yesterday. That doesn't happen very often. 
Yeah, I saw some of those pictures. They were, they were, yeah, they were. They were so that's what's coming your way. It's sort of hooking up into the uh, towards the east. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's uh, right now in Texas, moving actually into uh, Louisiana. Tornadoes just uh, outside of Houston earlier this evening. Um, so all of that severe weather and, and the moisture from the Gulf of Mexico basically taking a turn now, and from Texas to. Ontario in, in a matter of less than 24 hours. So uh, that's wow. what we have on the way tomorrow. Yeah, it's faster than flying for sure. It's faster than flying Air Canada for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's been a mild winter though. I mean, I think I've been reading all over the place that a lot of cities, I think I was just looking down all the different global news reports over the last couple of weeks, you know, Halifax are predicting might be the least snow they've seen in a winter. Uh, a lot of cities were looking at sort of high temperatures for the winter this year. Uh, it's been mild. It really has, and I'm doing the same thing. I mean, I'm looking at, at the actual data for the month of January, and, and just about every major city in Canada is anywhere from 3 to 6 or 7 degrees above average, and, and we're well into the month of January, so that is a, that is a rather unusual feat, and snow is lacking. We mentioned Toronto, you mentioned Halifax, just more rain than anything else. It's been wet, obviously, in the West Coast and even the prairies. I mean, it's colder. <laughs> it would be cold by it's a all lot relative. of other Canadians. It's all relative, it's all relative. by other standards, <laughs> yeah. perhaps frigid, but for them, uh, still a mild, rather benign winter so far. So let's talk about what's not benign, and that's minus 62 degrees. <laughs> so I guess people have been watching this thing sit on top of Siberia for a while because it's been it's been remarkably cold in that part of the world uh, for the past little bit. It has, and this is a, sometimes a precursor to what happens here, and we watch that very closely. And it, it, it basically, it's been rather amazing in Siberia because they've broken these records in these coldest in 20 years uh, this January, just a week or two ago. And, and that also happened in December, the coldest December temperatures in a couple of decades. And then what followed was a lot of that cold came up and over the North Pole, Alaska, Northwest Territories, and then into the Canadian prairies. And it helped to create that crazy blizzard around the Great Lakes. So it's all related, weather is. And we're seeing the cold again in Siberia. And now we have to watch where that very low-level, dense air travels, and it, it looks like it's coming our way once again. Yeah, that was that's what we were reading, that it's sort of headed this way. So w when you have something like that, when it's sort of stationary for a while, what pushes it, meteorologically speaking? Well, it, it tends to be a, a pattern change. Now, there's, there's different patterns. There are cycles that occur on daily scales, on weekly or monthly uh, time frames. And then there's also the longer term uh, patterns where we're talking El Nino or La Nina. And this, uh, we've been in a La Nina, which is cool water in the Pacific for the last three years. It's three years straight, which uh, doesn't happen very often. So those are controlling factors. But when you're talking about that actual cold Arctic air, uh, it's fronts that eventually push things along and those Arctic highs are on the move and, and they tend to set up where there is snowpack. There's a large snow field and it just creates a, a feedback, especially in January. You barely have any sunlight hitting these areas. So it just gets colder and colder and colder until that air moves either out into the Pacific or over land or over ice 
to Canada. So that's what's happening uh, once again with that. So that's what we're looking at now. I gather that it's going to get much colder on in the in Western Canada, right across Western Canada, including in BC. They're talking about sort of minus tens in in for as lows in Vancouver and Victoria, which is sort of uh, Siberian by 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 the standards of here, <laughs> at least as far as the people are concerned. And then some really the usual kind of deep freeze in uh, in Edmonton. Is that what you're seeing? Is it when sort of how is it moving down, and how quickly will it plunge everyone into uh, remind everyone what winter's really like? Yeah, I mean, it, it was cold, we all forget, but it was cold back in December for at least a stretch. And then yeah. uh, we saw that cycle out in a lot of Pacific air, those rains in California, all the way up and down the West Coast. Uh, yes, it was rather extreme for those West Coast uh, states and provinces, but it's the air masses that actually invaded the rest of North America and, and just completely ridded the country, uh, the continent of Arctic conditions. So now we're getting it reloading the, the polar vortex. We often talk about when it when it's sitting over areas it shouldn't be, but it's always around. That polar vortex is up over the North Pole most of the time. And when it's strong up there, it, it tends to bundle up the cold with it. So now what we're seeing is that polar vortex is weakening. So what happens is all the cold air that was bundled starts to spread out. And, and then we have to watch where it goes. And it is cycling once again. So uh, you mentioned Edmonton, Calgary, I mean, Saskatoon, Regina, Winnipeg, the, all of these cities, the typical low is, is anywhere between minus 18 and minus 23 in January. It hasn't been that cold this entire month, but it will be. Daytime high is next week in the minus 20s for all those locations. This cold front out west, Anthony, I gather it's going to bring sunshine, which is always welcome in BC, by the way, but it's going to, they stick around. <laughs> Somehow they tend to, they tend to linger. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, we've been uh, compared to BC lately because here in Toronto, uh, there's been about three days of sun since Christmas. It's been just incredibly cloudy. The prairies have had fog every morning, and that is because we haven't had the Arctic air, that Arctic high pressure. When it moves in, it brings sinking air, and it actually clears the sky out completely. And that's what Canada's known for in January, the crystal clear blue skies. And we're going to get that with the, with this pattern coming up. Yeah, I've always known people who come who move here from other countries are like, "Hey, it's crystal clear blue skies. That means warm." And you're like, "No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Not here, it doesn't." So it's but it's going to stick around for a while, I gather as well. Like we're going to go through a, a little while of this. At least that's what I was reading. I don't. Yeah, yeah. No, you're 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 definitely uh, right on. At least a couple of weeks. So we're now going out uh, through probably the 10th of February, maybe the middle of the month. There are signs that we actually reverse back to what we've had throughout January so far later into February. And that's something that that I know has become more common in recent winters where you have these big swings back and forth. You still get the cold, you still get the snow, but it doesn't necessarily stick around that long. So yes, a couple of weeks where it looks just brutally cold and then we, we may come out of it for, for a time later in February. Yeah, the the swings, you're right, it, it has been strange because we, we sort of get winter in dribs and drabs, right? We sort of get these, it used to be, um, you know, you get a couple of warm days, a couple of cold days. Now you get these huge these huge swings. It certainly changes the landscape a bit because as you mentioned, it's there's less snow when it gets cold, right? 
Yeah, and it definitely affects uh, a lot of the winter sports and uh, whether it's the <laughs> the Rideau Canal freezing over in Ottawa or right. if you have a snowmobile that you're just waiting or a, a new snowblower that you want to use or, or of course, skiing and, and boarding, uh, you got to make snow in Ontario because you're just not going to be reliant on Mother Nature anymore. Yeah, and the Rideau Canal is still not open, is it? Is it not? I think it's the uh, last I looked, it wasn't open. No, I just talked to my cousin who uh, is there, and they're waiting patiently. This is one of the latest opening dates on record, and of course, that season just gets shortened when you when you can't open uh, in time for the end of January. But I, I do see this pattern, and yeah, they'll they'll be open in, in no time, probably within the next week or so. Oh, really? So they'll finally get those. It has to be a certain temperature at night for a while for it to really get get its base, and then they can open it. Yeah, for a I, bit. I want to do uh, a story, Ben, on that because it is incredible, and, and they help the ice out. They actually uh, carve holes, and then they flood the rink so that it builds that ice upwards. So that, that would be a, a good story to do. It is, yeah. I mean, when I was based in Ottawa, I lived in Ottawa for a while. My mom's still there. You know, people skate to work, but, you know, the thing needs to be open. Sometimes it opens in early January, but this year it just ha- has just never had enough cold nights in a row to make sure that it was solid enough. And here we are, the 24th. And you're right, that, that season, once it, the sun starts, once the, day, once the days get longer, that ice doesn't last for too, too long. Yeah, so uh, I'm hoping they get, they get at least some season. People have skates. They're, they're waiting to just skate waiting. into work. Well, best of luck with the snow tomorrow, uh, Anthony, and, and to everyone in the East. And I guess we'll brace for the chill out here. Thanks so much for, for giving us a winter weather update. It's been, it's been a strange one for sure. I, I appreciate that. And you know what? When you think of cozy uh, recipes and chilies and all of that, that makes, that makes looking ahead at the forecast all that much better. Yeah, you know, there's always some decent things on TV. and You can sort of hunker down and stay warm. <laughs> stay warm or stay dry. All right. Well, great chatting with you. Here's a question for you tonight. Is there anything out there, a product, a food product specifically, that's been discontinued, something you can no longer find and uh, you still re- you still wish you could? I mean, and, and think back to when they first discontinued it and just the sheer um, disappointment that you must have felt when you realized it's gone. It's not going to be on the shelves anymore. I struggle today to think that there are dozens of products that fit that category for me. I just had trouble thinking of one today, one that really fit that bill. There are so many things over the years that I've enjoyed and then not been, not been able to find anymore. So I'll think of one by the time this is over, but help me out. If you can think of one, share it. one 9898 is the text line. one 9898 Let me know who you are, where you are, and a discontinued food product that you wish they would put back on the shelves. Wouldn't it be great? If they put it back on the shelves, and I will think of one <laughs> before this is before the night is out. Um, this is exactly what's happened. It's caused this huge social media firestorm in the U.S. Here's why: um, Ronzoni is a pasta brand. It's an Italian American pasta brand, so it's a U.S. one. They made this thing called pastina pasta, which is sort of a redundancy, but pastina. And uh, Stilene, I believe it's called, are the, are the tiny, tiny little ones. They're little, little, little stars. You used to use them in arts and crafts and well as well. But they're used as a soup. They're used as kind of almost like a, like a cream of wheatish type thing. I mean, you just cook them and stir them up, add some butter, some parmesan, whatever you want. Kids love them. Uh, they're sort of the gateway to pasta and often called Italian penicillin. 
they're a comfort food with, it's believed, curative powers. I mean, all comfort foods have a certain curative power. Here is a taste of why it, why they are so popular. I feel like Italians are obsessed with pastina and I want to see what the hype's all about. Pastina is this tiny star-shaped pasta and we just cook it in some broth, then stir in an egg, Parmesan cheese, and freshly cracked black pepper. Italians say this can cure you of almost anything. Okay, I love it. <laughs> see? Cure you of almost anything. Uh, but Ronzoni pulled their brand and it was really popular. Then people went just a little bit sideways. Um, they've had some visceral reactions. This is perhaps a good example of what people have been saying since it started disappearing from store shelves. Ranzoni is, is discontinuing pastina. No. Yeah, I just read that. Oh, come on. That's my favorite. We all love it. Do me a favor. Go to Walmart, Food Lion, Kroger, any place. They have to have some on the shelf. This is Ridiculous, really. I, I don't know. I think, according to the news, it's all sold out already. No, don't say that. Why didn't they give us a, at least a couple of months warning? <laughs> so, you can see people have gotten a little emotional about this one. Um, apparently, if you look, I mean, they've been reselling sites like Amazon and eBay, where some are going up to, like, single boxes are up to $180. Uh, now, the funny thing about this, of course, is they're not the only company that make this tiny little shape of noodle they they're you know, a pasta others do too but i guess ronzoni had a special place in many people's hearts um you know so this isn't really about pasta it isn't one of a listener just texted to say their pasta their their comfort food is, is you know a good stew or a good soup of course that's what this is about it's about comfort food it's about nostalgia. It's about why we get so upset when little pieces of our past that brought us comfort and joy are taken away and the injustice of it all. <laughs> Joining me now is Jen Koretnik. She is a cookbook author and freelance dining critic and food writer for Miami New Times. Jen, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. So this is always quite the story because, you know, you, you people it, it just sort of happened and then social media took over and now we have... A story on our hands. So what exactly went on? What, what is this product and how did it disappear? Right around Christmas time, people realized that Ranzoni, which is a very, very old brand of Italian-American pasta, was discontinuing pastina. And pastina um, is a very, very tiny pasta. In this case, um, Ranzoni's pastina is a tiny, tiny star-shaped pasta. It's really called Staline as a pasta. But pastina can be anything. It can be tiny bits of tube-shaped pasta. It can be tiny rice-shaped pasta like orzo. And it's cooked a certain way in butter and maybe a little Parmesan or maybe a little cream or milk, lots of salt. And it's it's a toddler food. It's a starter food for toddlers. People find it very comforting. They eat it when they're sick. They eat it for comfort. Their grandmothers make it for them. Um, their mothers make it for them. So when people realized it was actually being discontinued, there was this groundswell of rage, <laughs> just pure rage. <laughs> I mean, they've often called it the Italian penicillin, right? It's sort of, it's like, right. it's it's the chicken soup for the soul, so to speak, in, in Italian. Yes, and people do add it to soup also. It's very quick to cook. 
it's it takes really about you know 10 seconds um, to swell up in water or soup it goes down very easily you know now we think of carbs as a bad thing but when you're sick and you can't keep anything down and that's the first thing you can keep down there is a sort of nutritious aspect to it it's enriched with vitamins you know like the enriched bread and pastas and it is a hundred year old brand so especially for americans this was a, a thing to take pride in when Ranzoni first came to be. It was about 1915. So this was a, like the first real brand of Italian-American pasta. So for them to discontinue something, um, that's so, sort of also the source of the outrage. People feel betrayed. Yeah, especially, I guess, within the Italian-American community, having your own products is, is a big deal, right? Stelline, by the way, if you're wondering, means little stars. Often the pasta names just mean what they are in Italian, right? So uh, right. Stelina, Stelina, little stars. Um, yeah. What? Why was it discontinued? Do we know? Well, you know, the first statement that the company put out said that the sales weren't where they should be. And if you look at where how trends have, have gone in the, the generations now, people aren't eating as many carbohydrates and starches. But the second statement they put out said it's really a manufacturing issue. And I think that's probably more to the truth of it. We tend not to make simple things anymore. We have technology and do we really have like stamp cut, die cut things like the factories that make these little tiny things have sort of gone by the wayside. Yeah, I'm imagining sort of a little like the Toll House cookie factory or something, mm-hmm. making little stars with with like a little, uh, just a little, um, like a little cookie cutter. You know, again, obviously not what right. it is. Now there are many other brands of uh, of Pastina though of of Staline, right? There are. There are, and you can get them imported directly from Italy. You can get them in your local grocery store. The one thing that people really loved about Ranzoni, and that's why. I think it became such a loyalist product is that it was very inexpensive. So you could really feed yourself and your family on a single box for about 93 cents. Oh, wow. Um, that's what it was for a long time. Probably went up a little in recent days. But Barilla, which is like probably the closest to that product with a little bit of maybe better quality, is, you know, about three times that. Right. I mean, we know that one here. It's an Italian import, right? So that one's always a little more expensive. What happens now? I guess that's it, right? I mean, I've seen all the uh, the angry videos on TikTok. It's become sort of taken on a life of its own. They say they're not sure now where it's going to go. Is this all a marketing ploy? Is this something where they're willing to now investigate and bring it back? Is it really a manufacturing product if all of these other companies are making it? Or did sales really fall off? It's very hard to get a true answer out of the company because the company itself isn't really the company anymore. Ranzoni sold it back in around 2015. The company that owns it now, 8th Avenue, itself owned by the people who own Post Cereals. So this is layer layer of, you know, who owns what, who makes what. It's not really even being manufactured by the people who say they own it. Right. So this is part of a much bigger, a much bigger entity. It's part of a much bigger entity, and it's also partly part of a much bigger problem that we're going to see in the future of things being discontinued that my generation, Gen X, probably loves and grew up on that, you know, my post-war parents fed me, I fed my Gen Z children, but it sort of skipped a generation in the middle. They are the ones who are probably not buying it. 
No, I, I, it's amazing to think of Gen Gen. I'm also, you know, a Gen Xer. It's amazing to think that our products are going to start, you know, departing from the shelves because of lack of demand. Here we are. My grandmother used to talk about, you know, tooth powder, and you'd be like, "Grandma, that's long gone. That's long yeah. gone. Just squeeze it out of the tube." You know, so it's amazing how attached we are, though, to certain brands of certain things, which is thus thus the huge hue and cry over this particular brand of this particular pasta. Because again, as you mentioned, you could buy other versions of it. Yes. And, you know, it was just that this one, I guess, really hit home, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of their other smaller pastas have also disappeared unknowingly. If you don't look for it, you won't see that it's gone. I wonder if the cost of, I mean, clearly the cost of, you know, lots of things has gone up over the past year after the war in Ukraine and so on. Uh, I wonder if that's played into it too, just the economics of it for some of these companies. Well, it is an egg pasta. So the price of eggs is outrageous right now. Right, of course. No one's going to say that, you know, I don't want to make it anymore because it's too expensive and it's not sustainable. But I mean, we saw that coming a couple of years ago when all the chickens, it was with the chicken wing. Right around the Super Bowl, of course, the price of chicken wings had skyrocketed. Right. So you knew that eggs was next because if you can't afford chicken wings, then you're not then you're not making eggs either. No, I mean, I guess it's it's a funny thing about the food inflation story that we probably haven't talked about much is that there is that residual effect on a lot of products that may be nostalgic, but not necessarily big sellers anymore, that the companies may just look at the cost of production and say, uh, yeah, we don't need to we don't need to be making that anymore. Yeah, it's a food it's a food chain supply issue. Part of this, of course, is due to bird flu. That's the chicken problem. Um, but it does affect other things. It affects pasta. It's a, it affects the the prices of how you eat in a restaurant. So, you know, it's not surprising if you go to brunch now that you're not going to see as many egg dishes. No, I mean the price of eggs. We're reading about it here. I think it's been much higher in the U.S. than it is in Canada. I mean, not much higher, but higher than the jump has been more significant. I mean, it, it is, it is, it's very significant these days. So Little Stars, an egg pasta, semolina, right? So it's sort of a combination yeah. of expensive goods for a very little pasta sold inexpensively. You can see why that mightn't be. A, although with this side of kind of publicity, they may be recalculating what exactly they're going to do next. Because you'd think if they felt like they could do it properly, they'll find someone. Someone will make it for them if they if they feel like they can make money at it. I feel like maybe this would um, be a resurgence for them. But we've seen this tactic before, and it does work for a little while. And then people forget about it again. And then it just quietly disappears. You know, social yeah. media has its uses, but as a long-term revitalization, it doesn't usually work. Yeah, longevity isn't one of them. <laughs> That's not, uh, it's great great for the instant for the instant hit and the quick fix, but it's not so good for anything, not so good for much else. Do you make them? Do you, do you make, you, you said you made them? Are they, they must be, I try to remember, I must have had them over the years, but they, they look delicious now that I've watched 50 YouTube videos with them being cooked. Well, the interesting thing about Pastina, and I guess it was very regional in terms of where I grew up in the Northeast, close to New York City, is that it jumped from the Italians to other cultures. So we all ate them. Anybody who lived in that part of the country ate them, kind of the Midwest ate them, um, mid-Atlantic region ate them. So it wasn't just restricted to one culture. And, you know, that's why I think the outrage became so widespread. And people had their own little ways of doing it too. You know, I asked when I was doing this article, I, I asked around, give me your anecdotes, tell me how you ate it. And people would tell me they ate it with margarine and ketchup. And I would be like, okay, that's... Ketchup and <laughs> margarine, yikes. Yeah. Oh, well, 
Yeah, that is, that's, that's a bit, uh, I don't know, it doesn't sound right. Anyway. Sounds kind of gross, but yeah. you know, to each their own. People told me they put sugar in it and I like sugar. Like a cereal. That's, yeah, like a hot cereal. Yeah, so cream of wheat or something, really, yeah. It's really how you preferred it. Very easy to tailor. And again, you know, as a Gen Xer, we were all kind of latchkey kids. It was very easy to make for yourself. Yeah, so, I remember those days. I made cream of wheat. That was my specialty. Cream of wheat, extra lumpy. It was terrible, yeah, but I could, but I could make it, right? I could make it. Right. People could make it for themselves. It was not difficult. And that was also part of it. So it, there's a nostalgia factor built in. I did. I never thought of it that, that, you know, food that was good for latchkey kids is starting to disappear now that there aren't any anymore, but or aren't, yeah. aren't as many. Uh, that's a good point. Pestina, scrambled eggs. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I guess, yeah. And, and well, cream of wheat is still out there. But uh, Jen Karetnik, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Gill drilled by Stewart. Stewart and Gill push with each other. That's Trotje and, and uh, Gill now. They drop the sticks and gloves, and Trotje's hot. Wade's in, trying to get a hand free. Gill throws a couple. Trotje with a right hand, hammering away at Gill. Gill throws them. Toe-to-toe they go. Trotje ducks the head as the helmet comes off. Trotje, you know, when you hear hockey and Trotje, you always think of Brian Trotje, right? That wasn't Brian Trotje. That was Rocky Trotje. And, uh, you know, I dug around for some audio of him playing, and he played for quite a while for the New Jersey, uh, for the um, for the Devils. That's right. Back, I'm going to get that right. <laughs> I'm going to get that wrong. He played for the Devils, of course, uh, back in the day. And, um, you know, he, he was one of those guys whose name I remembered, but he wasn't one of those big heroes that you think of from from um, from his era. But he had a solid career. He, he had he made it to the NHL. What What is more impressive than that, right? And what is more impressive about playing in the NHL than having a hockey card? I was thinking earlier today about what a rite of passage for anyone who's grown up in this in this land, having a hockey card, you know, being able to see someone on a hockey card when you're a kid. I mean, just your face on the card, your name on the back, it's sort of instant glory, right? Instant credibility, instant hero when you're a when you appear on a credit card. I remember staring at those strange credit cards I used to collect in the 70s with you guys with big hair and big mustaches. And, you know, it was an odd look. The photos were always a little bit strange, but uh, they were my heroes, you know, guys like Al McAdam and, and you know, uh, Gil Fleur and all of them, all of them. You know, I can remember all, I can, if you show me a picture of them, I could probably still remember half of them to these days. Um, well, for the first time, eight former NHL players from indigenous communities are featured on their own hockey cards. Now, these are players like Rocky Trottier, who had brief stays in the NHL, some of them very brief, but all in their own way, made good names for themselves. A lot of them had really long minor league careers. Some of them played at a time, of course, when it was really hard to make it into the NHL back when there were just six teams or 12 teams. Uh, But all of them made an impact in their own way, including the first player from the Northwest Territories to ever play in the NHL, amongst others. Um, This series is called, it's from Upper Deck, it's called the First People's Rookie Card Series. And none of the eight, the octet who appear in them, have ever had their own trading card. They were officially released back on January 13th. Uh, They're made available through Indigenous hockey camps and games, as well as an Indigenous-owned store in Winnipeg called First Row Collectibles. The story behind it is really interesting. The seeds of the idea were planted by Kelowna's name Cardinal uh, a few years ago when he mentioned to Upper Deck that more than a few Indigenous players had never had their own cards. Uh, he took care of the stats and the bios. My next guest 
took up the design challenge. They're really great looking cards. Uh, graphic artist Jacob Alexis is from the Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation in Alberta, and he joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight. Hey, um, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. This must have been, I was listening to a couple of the interviews you've done recently. Uh, like all of us, when you were a kid, you used to draw hockey cards, right? Or, or hockey uniforms. Oh, you, used to, you used to draw a lot. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. You know, when the teacher's talking and it's going into uh, peanuts mode and, you, <laughs> and you're, you're just kind of spacing out in your notebook. And yeah, that was one of the things um, when we'd open up the cards, I'd always notice the the artwork like the the design aspect of it not just the names on the cards but you know how the colors they use and you know how they framed all the pictures and even the the action shots that they did take just little things like that i always i look back now and i notice those things when i was just like really small and and, and it kind of makes sense that i do what i do now because those are things that are apparent to me and uh, other than yeah. just the names on the cards so yeah, that's kind of wow. That's I used that's, to draw, that's impressive. Like, uniforms and 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 shirts and what like just everything, just anything that I could think of, and it was always like based on my my knowledge of um my upbringing of uh, the cultural background and just being around those kind of things like uh like uh, outfit and regalia making and beading and all that stuff. I kind of just took that approach and and applied it and you know just dreamt like oh one day I might be able to design this or. You know, if I did it, it might look like this, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just like uh, actively dreaming about it without even realizing that it could be something that could be real one day. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think when I was that age, I, I had no idea who made hockey cards or how they designed them. I just knew they looked cool. I liked the uniforms. Right. So that was, yeah, uh, yeah interesting. I mean, did you ever incorporate sort of sort of all kinds of different artistry into them as well, even even when you were younger? Um, uh, kind of, but not really. It was just kind of what, what I saw around me, you know, like any kind of, um, like if, for example, I, I try to incorporate, um, designs that my, my own family would use into, into like a layout, you know, just <clears throat> mock up or whatever. And, and it's just, for, you know, for fun to kill time, just a, a passion thing. And, and yeah, that was just kind of, um, an early sign of what, a you know, and I never had an uh, an idea that that might be something that I want to do for a living or nothing. Is this something that I did that I now I look back on? I was like, wow, that's actually pretty interesting. I didn't I never really realize that I was I was doing it that do, early, like in in grade school or whatever. So do what you love, right? I mean, that's uh, yeah. that's that's probably, probably I used to pretend to host radio shows. Believe it or not, oh, <laughs> they yeah. were never very oh, yeah. good. They were never very good. <laughs> yeah. Probably not as good as your drawings. <laughs> tell me about tell me about the opportunity to do this series of players because it really is a fascinating if you I looked up the history of all the players today I'd heard of some of them not all of them uh but what a fascinating collection of players that you looked into how did it come about Well for me um actually it's kind of uh it's kind of uh random because um I grew up playing the game and um and and I I grew up on and off reserve so I, I ended up uh, living in the Calgary area for many, many years until I moved back in like my early teen years. And when I did, uh, I ended up, uh, well, I, I grew up for the game of basketball as well. So I played both and it was always something that, you know, something that I, I always enjoyed. But um, when I came back, uh, there was a, a man by the name of uh, Alan Ross, he, he, the late Alan Ross. He, he's the founder of the Alberta Indigenous Games. Um he started an organ organization called Edmonton Native Basketball Association, and what he did was he recruited high school players from around the city inner city area and and uh, t 
got enough players to start a, a high school team, so an 18 and under team. And um, when I went to the one of the first practices we had for that team, we just traveled to tournaments and stuff. And um, Name was one of the people that was there. So that and that's when I first met him. So when we were teenagers, and and we were both just you know young young punks in high school. And <laughs> so I, I already knew who he was. And then we kind of just grew up playing ball together. And I played hockey still here. And and he like I didn't even know he collected and stuff like that. So we were. We were friends for a long time, and and um, when he when he got the opportunity, I seen his his collection, and when he got the opportunity, he knew what I did, and he he immediately thought about me. So I was really really honored and grateful for that, and um, yeah, I couldn't be more more thankful for my friend in um, Upper Deck for you know giving me the chance to 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 do this to to make one of my dreams reality. You know, <laughs> yeah, to to create a hockey card, right? It is. Um... It is. Tell me a bit. I don't know how much. I mean, I mean, I know that name did a lot of the sort of the bios and 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 that. But but how much did you know about the eight players that were selected and why they were selected specifically? Um, for, as far as I knew, I, I I talked to name and he came to me with the idea and he said these guys have never been recognized and um, they they haven't had a card. So I was like, wow. And that that's pretty much all I knew. I didn't know much about the history or the background of every player. But um, when I when I saw the images, they gave me images and backgrounds to use for the mock-ups. And I went into, uh, I wanted to tell a story, you know. So um, in, in, in the, a lot of the cultural ways, we, we when we uh, achieve something of greatness, um, it's honored with an eagle feather. So that, that was right. one reason why I wanted to incorporate the eagle feather in this design was to give these people these, these um, great... Uh, players that honor you know because it's 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 uh appropriate in this case i i thought and 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 yeah there's just little acts like elements like that that i know especially as, as a like you know i i know as collectors you guys look for those story storytelling elements and i know they're they're important so um i i actually made sure I, I wanted to to really tell a story and that was one of the main reasons i used that and it is a canadian collection so obviously it goes hand in hand and i and i want to include the 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 element of water and in uh, our ways, the, the Thunderbirds are the keepers of water. So that's why I included like little, little light uh, contemporary forms of lightning. And, you know, cause the game of hockey, it's very important <laughs> water. So, yeah, <laughs> and, See, as you're mentioning this, I'm looking at one. And of course I've looked at them all day. I looked at them over the weekend yeah. as well. And now that you're talking about them, I'm noticing little elements that I didn't notice yeah. before, of course. Right. That's yeah. yeah. And yeah. Little, little Easter eggs. And um, if you notice the little bent, shapes those are the actual uh uh stick the oldest hockey stick that's in the museum there it's uh, made by the Mi'kmaq right. people yeah, yeah so i wanted to incorporate that in as well just to you know st- tie the the show the tie between the the connection between indigenous communities and the game because so it's it's you know it's like intertwined almost so that's that, that was a lot of the um, the aspects and there's there's more but i i, I lost for words <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. I, that's it's it's remarkable how much you managed to because you know often you can sort of give a cursory look at it. You know the problem, of course, is that as a as a journalist, you kind of look at the names and look at where they're from and their backgrounds. And I looked at the cards a lot, but I missed a lot of the uh, a lot of the Easter eggs. So thanks for pointing them out. Uh, you had to work with some pretty different looking photos there because, of course, I collected hockey cards in the seventies when I grew up, and I recognized that look that Vic Mercury's Atlanta Flames one had. And then you had some other more action shots. How did you try and incorporate kind of the different eras of photography into the into the uh, graphic design? 
Um, it was <clears throat> pretty straightforward. Uh, once I came up with the the concept, uh, I kind of just applied it to each each um, each photo. So, uh, and uh, understandably, so they weren't so um, fussy with the resolution because <laughs> we <laughs> it was one of those situations where we we take what we can get, and um, a lot of the some some of the players uh, didn't even have photos that they had a, a list, and um, some of the players you couldn't find photos of them at all, and they were talking about maybe um, having an artist do a rendition of them or something like that. Right. But um, I don't believe those those are on the list. Like, I don't think they made the final pack. Maybe that's the reason why, but uh, that's that's beyond my knowledge. But <laughs> uh, yeah. it was just, uh, it wasn't too too difficult. It was kind of kind of difficult coming up with a theme that would spread across all the images. And um, yeah, but it was, it was fun. I, I, I enjoyed trying all these different things and running them past name and working together with the team just to, to make sure everything would work. Did you get any, have you heard any reaction to the cards from the players themselves? Uh, I've read some and, and it felt it, really good. Like uh, I, I saw um, Jason Simon's, uh, I saw the headline that he, it, it almost brought him to tears. And, and that to me, uh, reading that meant everything. Like uh, when I, as an artist, um, as an indigenous person, uh, I, I just like growing up the way with the beliefs that, I've been taught and we, we put, we put some of ourselves into everything, especially when it comes to stuff like art, things of expression, we put ourselves into it. And, and um, we always try to send like things like this, that, that are of importance that are, that you're teaching some kind of, uh, you're, you're doing uh, teaching. It, it has to have some kind of uh, special energy put into it. And when you put those in, it, it transfers to someone else possibly. That's, that's the goal. And, that's and when I read that, it, it's like I, I, I think he got the connection that when I put it in there, I was trying. That's what I was trying to convey. And 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 I always say it's like it's something like you think you look at it and it sparks a question, or you look at it and you know exactly what I was trying to do, or oh, you look wow. at it and it, and it just makes you feel something. That's the connection. I I try to Im- implement that into everything that I do as a, as a graphic artist, and and it's um it's an approach that I learned uh, growing up from my my um my the people above me my my teachers my parents my grandparents my family um they, they always try to try to make it have meaning so it's it's special great vic vic mercury very much liked his cards uh, the north uh, journalist in northwest territories interviewed him and he really liked it i know you did the every child matters uh jersey for the calgary hitmen as well the whl and it, yeah. it's a great looking jersey, but you just pointed out something that I did. I mean, there is there is that extra pressure, right? This isn't just graphic design. This is culture and history. There's a lot there, and because this is the first time a lot of these organizations have had these sorts of uh, designs on their uniforms, you're blazing a trail here, and it must be stressful sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was on an honor, and then immediately I started feeling a little bit like I got to do this the right way, and I have to try to. Um, take take the steps necessary to to um, doing that and like I said once again I just I grew up around people crafting and and creating these types of stories and I just took that same approach and I always did actually learning in, in back in the school and um, design school like learning about design theory it was literally just the same thing you, layers upon layers and color like uh, color blocking and just how you tell your story with even just a simple shape you know a basic shape right. you can tell tell so much it's just like they say pictures with a thousand words you literally just tell your story with with these with these uh visual elements and and that's what exactly what i what i was going for with the 
hitmen. And that's actually interesting because that's a coincidence. I, I worked on these cards probably when the pandemic first started, literally. Like, oh, wow. Okay. April. So long, bef- long before the shirt. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, Jacob, yeah. I have to leave, I have to, I have to leave it at that because I've run out, I've run out of time, but it was, I, I highly suggest it. If you're listening, go have a look at the Every Child Matters Calgary Hitman shirt. It's really, really quite amazing looking. And if you can go have a look at the first people's rookie card series as well, the features indigenous NHLers who never had their own cards till now. And uh, Jacob Alexis helped design them. Thank you so much or design them rather. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, the last half hour we were talking about uh, the fight against corruption in Ukraine, which is an ongoing issue, always has been. It is really, for Ukraine, a two-pronged war here. There is the aggressor Russia that they are fighting militarily, and then within the country itself, there is the corruption fight that has been going on for ages now. But with so much money coming in from donors, with so much support from allies coming in, uh, with the, with requests for more support, certainly requests, requests for ongoing support, the importance is to make sure that you're seen to be combating corruption. And that uh, is part of why uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president today of Ukraine, came out so publicly and sort of talked about the fact that uh, he had accepted the resignation of a higher of a high up member of his own staff as well as others in uh, the defense department uh the deputy prosecutor general and others um but here we are 11 months after the uh you know the, the expansion of the war in Ukraine as Russia attempted to seize even more land illegally and were pushed back here we are 11 months later and a lot of the things that were said about Vladimir Putin 12 months ago for instance um are different now. I mean, at one point he was seen as being, you know, in that lead up to the war, the extension of the war back in February of 2020, February of 2022, uh, you know, there were there was a real mystique around Putin still, master strategist, you know, KGB always knew what he was doing, always had the upper hand, always managed to trick the West. What are we thinking about it now? I mean, here we are 11 months later, he's been decimated, his country is going down the drain. He's been, I mean, his entire legacy, you get the sense, the the entire legacy, we'll see what happens. But nothing, you don't come back from this. I mean, you're meant to, you predicted you would invade your neighbor and succeed in three days. And here we are 11 months later, you're losing. You've been losing for ages. Your military's terrible. They're underfunded, undertrained. They look awful. You send them to the front with nothing. But you know what? That's what strong men do. Strong men deplete everything. You know, thieves deplete everything. They deplete their countries of every of every source of power that isn't their own. Um, and here we are, eleven months later. Now, today, you know, there's an expectation the Russians may start a new offensive soon. You know, they need Putin feels the need to show that he hasn't been beaten here. You know, he whatever the cost of Russia. I mean, he doesn't care, right? This is about his own legacy. It's not about his country. Certainly, doesn't care anything about the people he allegedly what governs. I'll use that term very loosely. Um, So they're thinking another offensive is coming. Who knows what it'll be? Maybe winter, maybe spring, probably more likely spring. One top Ukrainian military official put it this way today, Putin faces ruin if he fails. If it fails, he faces ruin. 
Now, that's an interesting, I mean, we've talked about Putin's downfall a lot the last year. It hasn't happened, right? Um, but one thing that is always clear, because this is true for all strong men, there is no game plan for an exit. There is no graceful exit. We didn't see one with Saddam Hussein. We didn't see one with Muammar Gaddafi. We didn't see one with Mobutu. We didn't see one with Ceausescu. We're not going to see one for Vladimir Putin. He thinks he's invincible. He thinks he's never going to make the mistakes that the strong men of the past have made. But you know, chances are his fate is going to be that of every other strong man. Eventually they get taken out, right? I mean, they go down. How they go down is often up to them, either into exile or something more violent. But, you know, he doesn't seem to have any concept that this may soon, that it could fall, you know, that, that it could all fall apart for him. So what could cause him to fall? What will he take down with him? Well, lessons from the past certainly offer a hint of what could happen. And few have studied this more and know this better than my next guest. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, a frequent contributor to the Washington Post, CNN, and other publications. And she's author of a book called Strong Men, How They Rise, Why They Succeed, and How They Fall. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, thank you for your time. Sure, it's a pleasure. One of the fascinating things that you often point out, and I think we've been thinking a lot about Vladimir Putin these days because he seems to be right in the spotlight is that there is no end game. And I, and I think a lot of us are thinking, what does Vladimir Putin's end game look like? And it's hard to, hard to imagine. It is because democratic leaders, they understand that their time will come to an end and they, there will be a transition. Authoritarians, especially Putin, has been there for 22 years. He's exerted too much power for too long. And it becomes like an existential threat, the, the very idea that they would fall uh, or their power is weakening. And I actually think that Putin was feeling that he was at his peak in summer 2021, which now we know he was planning his, this is when the Ukraine invasion was taking shape. This idea, maybe he was ill, but any kind of intimation of decline or mortality or losing power, declining, uh, is enough to make them uh, act recklessly. And we saw that's what he did with Ukraine. So, and we often, of course, and you've pointed this out in the book about how we often, or they often portray themselves as sort of super strategists, right? 3D chess is always what we talk mm -hmm. about when we talk about Putin. And yet in the case of the invasion of uh, the further invasion of Ukraine, it seems to have been a horrific miscalculation. I mean, completely miscalculated on his part. Uh, does that surprise you? No, it's, it's, I have other cases like Mussolini. This is, I call this autocratic backfire and it's a syndrome. And so the book is about finding patterns and because they all have, they have a similar temperament, these, these leaders. And so after they've been in power for a while, they've surrounded themselves with sycophants and flatterers. And there's something that's called institutionalized lying where nobody will tell the leader the truth. <laughs> and that can happen as, as we're seeing in the military realm, nobody wants to tell him that his, you know, his, his policies are misguided. And so they get into a kind of bubble. And when they're in that state, they, again, if they launch a reckless course of action, there's no check on them. And of course, Putin, you know, amended the constitution so he doesn't have to worry about being voted out. It's very symptomatic. It's interesting. Um, Mussolini did the same thing. And most famously, you know, he, against the advice of all of his generals, he went into World War II on the side of Hitler before Italy was ready. And he appointed himself minister of war, 
minister of uh, aviation minister. He was, you know, calling the shots and he was a very good journalist, but he was not a military person. So I read with great interest that Putin is apparently interfering and taking over military policy. And that's one reason they're doing so badly. So it's like this megalomania and they start to believe their propaganda about themselves being infallible. And then they get into a big nightmare. L'état c'est moi, you know, the state is me, of course. It's interesting, though, because in Putin's case, he always had a reputation because of his KGB background and so forth, that he would be a little bit different from sort of the blowhard types of the Mussolini's and the Trumps and so on, the the ones who are more prone to the showboating. I mean, Putin was Mm -hmm. more about other than the obviously the annual horseback photos, uh, but that Putin was was uh, uh, set apart because of his (laughs) intelligence background, that he would be a, a more destructive and more ruthless guy who was always well informed. Yes, but it's really then, you know, getting to a point where you believe you are infallible. What happens with this these kind of autocracies is that the personal obsessions and personal fantasies of grandeur, and in Putin's case, it's, you know, he wants to be on the level of Catherine the Great or Peter the Great. He wants to revive some kind of empire. And they are very concerned with leaving a legacy. And so, in fact, we have a problem now with Xi Jinping, who is going down the same path. And by the way, they I'm very worried. I mean, I've tweeted a million times, you've got to shut down the genocidal war on Ukraine, because the more one autocrat gets away with things, the more other autocrats are watching. And then they ramp up their aggressive actions because they think they'll get away with it as well, because he's not being stopped, basically. So it's a very there's a series of destructive dynamics that get unleashed at moments like this. And then we see the result is is imperialist war. I guess we shouldn't be, then be surprised by the fact that, um, you know, I mean, Russia was not in fantastic shape. Demographically, it was slipping. Uh, certainly it wasn't. The 21st century was not going to be Russia's century, we didn't think. But at the same time, the economy was doing relatively well. There was foreign investment. I mean, I'd spent time in Moscow and it was doing OK. And yet it seems that Putin was willing to throw that all away in some senses. If the sanctions are unprecedented, it feels like a giant North Korea now with the risk of exaggerating. But he really has pushed his country back a very long way in a very short period of time. And you wonder, why would you do that? This is their personalities and the same qualities that allow them to get to this position of, you know, great power, the ruthlessness, the absence of a moral code, the hubris, all of that become liabilities when they reach what I call late autocracy, because they don't listen to reason we know that Putin did not game out the war with his military advisors. He didn't also consult adequately with his economic advisors about possible sanctions. He just did what he wanted to do. And that's, you know, that's when they get into trouble. You've called it end stage follies, right? I mean, we don't know that it's the end stage, but it certainly feels like a folly. Yes. And, you know, I was so there's a paperback edition 2021 and it includes January 6th because Trump is in the book. But I singled out, which is kind of interesting now, I singled out Putin as perhaps becoming vulnerable. Yes, the economy was fine, but I was very struck by a poll that said that 50 percent of Russians 18 to 24 years old thought that Russia was going in the wrong direction. And he was having to use more disinformation and more violence on his enemies, not less. 
there was something about his state where he was. This is in the late autocracy that led me to feature him saying, well, he could be in a difficult position. And so what they do when they feel they're in a difficult position is some kind of grandiose invasion or grandiose um, military action. You mentioned at one point in your book that they they're obsessed with each other, right? Putin was obsessed mm-hmm. with how Gaddafi uh, was killed. I was in Libya not long before that. And I mean, I remember the death, the death rattle of Libya under Gaddafi was willing to take his country out if he thought he could survive. Gaddafi was obsessed with Saddam Hussein. So Putin clearly has thought about what the end might look like and knows what he doesn't want it to look like. That's right. I thought it was really interesting, just as Gaddafi was so afraid that he would meet the end of Saddam Hussein, that he did this kind of superficial liberalization. He pretended and then he cooperated on terrorism, he extradited people. I was also interested to see that in turn became obsessed, apparently, with how Gaddafi ended his life, which was in a very bloody manner. You know, this happens to dictators. It does. And so they they not only look at what each other are getting away with, and this is why it's so important to, you never want to appease an autocrat. And not only because that autocrat, it feels more empowered. These are, these are personalities that, you know, they, they don't have any limits. And the more people are uh, appeasing them, weak with them, the more they feel they're never going to be satisfied. This is what many people didn't understand. They said, oh, if we give him, if we give Hitler this, then that'll be enough. Well, it's never enough. This is the megalomania. If we let Putin have Crimea, that'll be that, right? If we let him take a little bit of what he wants, that'll be that. That's right. And in fact, if we see Russia's uh, model of war, it's also very interesting to see, you know, autocrats wage war in their own manner. And again, these are people who have zero moral code, they do what they're Machiavellian. And so war crimes and atrocities have been part of the Putin model of war since, you know, Georgia in 2008. So it's all about what can you get away with? We shouldn't be surprised to see that he's, you know, pursuing genocide. That's what I was saying before about a fixation. Hitler had the, you know, fixated on the Jews. Mm-hmm. And Putin's, his fixation is uh, annihilating Ukraine. In order to feel safe and to be the defender. So they, this is where the machismo comes in. These guys like to pose as the defender and the protector. And the irony is that he, he's through his misguided actions, you know, all you have to do is, it's so striking. Look at those images of hundreds of thousands of young Russians fleeing for the borders so they don't have to fight Putin's war. That's quite an indictment. It is. I mean, there are many in that uh, country who are wide awake to what's going on. What would his fall? I mean, he's been such a focal point of whether it be authoritarianism all around the world, to be honest, it always seems to have a link back to the Kremlin, maybe not everyone, but a lot of them. What would his fall mean? And what would his remaining mean, um, if, if depending how this all continues to unfold in Ukraine? Yeah, it's very, it's one thing we, we want to uh, look at when we're in late autocracy is something called elite defection. And there's a reason that so many prominent Russians are falling out of windows and going into the hospital and never coming out again, <laughs> um, except <laughs> through da- the window. It's a dangerous job, yeah. But it's there's it's an extraordinary a, a num- high number since the war began. So elite defection is when a, regime is on its last legs and people who have supported 
the leader for all these years, it happened to Gaddafi at the very end, decided to defect and go to the other side. And so he is clamping down by making an example of dozens and dozens of people now um, who have you know, met suspicious ends, let's say. So we want to look at that. And some people have, um, Russian experts have, you know, prophesied that there could be a fragmentation or breakup of the Russian Federation if Putin falls. That's for, you know, the Russian people to, to decide, right? To do, to carry out. But that is something that is not impossible. It's like an entropy and all of these radicalizing energies. Um, if the leader who's like the glue, if he, if he disappears or he's killed or he's just not strong anymore, all these other people, including people, regional fiefdoms, warlords, they go into action. And that happened in Libya. It's bad for all of it. As far as one can tell, it hasn't had much success, a real success ever, as far as you can, as far as one can tell, it always ultimately leads to a Mobutu or a, or a yes. Putin or a Gaddafi or a Saddam, which is, you know, bankrupting the country and sending it in down the down the drain uh in defense of one's own interests. That's right. And and every time we mention Putin, we should be mentioning kleptocracy because you can't understand anything about Putin and Russia under Putin if you don't realize that the entire economy is a mix of illegal and legal activity and that all big state agencies including Gazprom are plundered by, you know, Putin and his proxies and his cronies, the oligarchs. It's extraordinary. When I did the research for Strongman, by 2008, one in six Russian business people had been targeted for their businesses to be seized by the state. So this is how kleptocracy is, and it's the key to everything. And it's why authoritarianism isn't very sustainable. You've mentioned this, though, for many other strongmen in the, the past. Putin may go, Putinism won't, though. The echoes of that carry on, not just in Russia, but elsewhere. I mean, his others will look to him for guidance and think they can be and be bold enough to think they can avoid whatever the end may be for Vladimir Putin. Yes. And the thing about the strongman personalities, they always think their end is going to be different, that they're not going to meet with the same you know, fate as those uh, less intelligent peers of theirs. Um, this is their hubris, their arrogance. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, thank you so much for your time tonight. Sure, it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> 